Book the Six, Part One of A Laodicean by Thomas Hardy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Book the Sixth, Paula, Part One. I have decided that I cannot see Sir William again. I shall go away, said Paula on the evening of the next day, as she lay on her bed in a flushed and highly strung condition, though a person who had heard her words without seeing her face would have assumed perfect equanimity to be the mood which expressed itself with such quietness. This was the case with her aunt, who was looking out of the window at some idlers from Markton walking round the castle with their eyes bent upon its windows, and she made no haste to reply. Those people have come to see me, as they have a right to do when a person acts so strangely, Paula continued, and hence I am better away. Where do you think to go to? Paula replied in the tone of one who was actuated entirely by practical considerations. Out of England, certainly, and as Normandy lies nearest, I think I shall go there. It is a very nice country to ramble in. Yes, it is a very nice country to ramble in, echoed her aunt in moderate tones. When do you intend to start? I should like to cross to-night. You must go with me, aunt, will you not? Mrs. Goodman expostulated against such suddenness. It will redouble the rumours that you are afloat, if, after being supposed ill, you are seen going off by railway perfectly well. That's a contingency which I am quite willing to run the risk of. Well, it would be rather sudden, as you say, to go to-night, but we'll go to-morrow night, at latest. Under the influence of the decision, she bounded up like an elastic ball and went to the glass, which showed a light in her eye that had not been there before this resolution to travel in Normandy had been taken. The evening and the next morning were passed in writing a final and kindly note of dismissal to Sir William de Stancy, in making arrangements for the journey, and in commissioning Havel to take advantage of their absence by emptying certain rooms of their furniture and repairing their dilapidations, a work which, with that in hand, would complete the section for which he had been engaged. Mr. Wardlaw had left the castle. So also had Charlotte, by her own wish, her residence there having been found too oppressive to herself to be continued for the present. Accompanied by Mrs. Goodman, Millie, and Clementine, the elderly French maid, who still remained with them, Paula drove into Markton in the twilight, and took the train to Budmouth. When they got there they found that an unpleasant breeze was blowing out at sea, though inland it had been calm enough. Mrs. Goodman proposed to stay at Budmouth till the next day, in hope that there might be smooth water. But an English seaport inn, being a thing that Paula disliked more than a rough passage, she would not listen to this counsel. Other impatient reasons, too, might have weighed with her. When night came, their looming miseries began. Paula found that in addition to her own troubles, she had those of three other people to support. But she did not audibly complain. Paula, Paula, said Mrs. Goodman from beneath her load of wretchedness. Why did we think of undergoing this? A slight gleam of humour crossed Paula's not particularly blooming face as she answered. Ah, why indeed? What is the real reason, my dear? For God's sake, tell me. It begins with S. Well, I would do anything for that young man short of personal martyrdom, but really when it comes to that. 
Don't criticise me, Auntie, and I won't criticise you. Well, I'm open to criticism just now, I'm sure, said her aunt with a green smile, and speech was again discontinued. The morning was bright and beautiful, and it could again be seen in Paula's looks that she was glad she had come, though in taking their rest at Cherbourg, fate consigned them to a hotel breathing an atmosphere that seemed specially compounded for depressing the spirits of a young woman. Indeed, nothing had particularly encouraged her thus far in her somewhat peculiar scheme of searching out and expressing sorrow to a gentleman for having believed those who traduced him. And this coupe d'audace to which she had committed herself began to look somewhat formidable. When in England, the plan of following him to Normandy had suggested itself as the quickest, sweetest and most honest way of making amends. But having arrived there, she seemed further off from his sphere of existence than when she had been at Stancy Castle. Virtually she was, for if he thought of her at all, he probably thought of her there. If he sought her, he would seek her there. However, as he would probably never do the latter, it was necessary to go on. It had been her sudden dream before starting to light accidentally upon him in some romantic old town of this romantic old province, but she had become aware that the recorded fortune of lovers in that respect was not to be trusted too implicitly. Somerset's search for her in the south was now inversely imitated. By diligent inquiry in Cherbourg during the gloom of evening, in the disguise of a hooded cloak, she learnt out of the place of his stay while there, and that he had gone thence to Lisieux. What she knew of the architectural character of Lisieux half guaranteed the truth of the information. Without telling her aunt of this discovery, she announced to that lady that it was her great wish to go on and see the beauties of Lisieux. But though her aunt was simple, there were bounds to her simplicity. Paula, she said with an undeceivable air, I don't think you should run after a young man like this. Suppose he shouldn't care for you by this time. It was no occasion for further affectation. I'm sure he will, answered her niece flatly. I have not the least fear about it, nor would you if you knew how he is. He will forgive me anything. Well, pray don't show yourself forward. Some people are apt to fly into extremes. Paula blushed a trifle and reflected and made no answer. However, her purpose seemed not to be permanently affected, for the next morning she was up betimes and preparing to depart, and they proceeded almost without stopping to the architectural curiosity town which had so quickly interested her. Nevertheless, her ardent manner of yesterday underwent a considerable change, as if she had a fear that, as her aunt suggested, in her endeavour to make amends for cruel injustice, she was allowing herself to be carried too far. On nearing the place, she said, Aunt, I, I think you had better call upon him, and you need not tell him we have come on purpose. Let him think, if he will, that we heard he was here and would not leave without seeing him. You can also tell him that I am anxious to clear up a misunderstanding and ask him to call at our hotel. But as she looked over the dreary suburban erections which lined the road from the railway to the old quarter of the town, it occurred to her that Somerset would, at that time of day, be engaged in one or other of the medieval buildings thereabout, and that it would be a much neater thing to meet him, as if by chance, in one of those edifices, than to call upon him anywhere. Instead of putting up at any hotel, 
they left the maids and baggage at the station, and hiring a carriage, Paula told the coachman to drive them to such likely places as she could think of. "'He'll never forgive you,' said her aunt, as they rumbled into the town. "'Won't he?' said Paula, with soft faith. "'I'll see about that.' "'What are you going to do when you find him? Tell him point-blank that you are in love with him?' "'Act in such a manner that he may tell me he is in love with me.' They first visited a large church at the upper end of a square that sloped its gravelled surface to the western shine and was pricked out with little avenues of young pollard limes. The church within was one to make any Gothic architect take lodging in its vicinity for a fortnight, though it was just now crowded with a forest of scaffolding for repairs in progress. Mrs Goodman sat outside, and Paula, entering, took a walk in the form of a horseshoe, that is, up the south aisle, round the apse, and down the north side. But no figure of a melancholy young man sketching met her eye anywhere. The sun that blazed in at the west doorway smote her face as she emerged from beneath it, and revealed real sadness there. This is not all the old architecture of the town by far, she said to her aunt with an air of confidence. Coachman, drive to Saint-Jacques. He was not at Saint-Jacques. Looking from the west end of that building, the girl observed the end of a steep, narrow street of antique character, which seemed a likely haunt. Beckoning to her aunt to follow in the fly, Paula walked down the street. She was transported to the Middle Ages. It contained the shops of tinkers, braziers, bellows-menders, hollow-turners, and other quaintest trades, their fronts open to the street beneath stories of timber overhanging so far on each side that a slit of sky was left at the top for the light to descend, and no more. A blue, misty obscurity pervaded the atmosphere, into which the sun thrust oblique staves of light. It was a street for a medievalist to revel in, toss up his hat and shout hurrah in, send for his luggage, come and live in, die and be buried in. She had never supposed such a street to exist outside the imaginations of antiquarians. Smells, direct from the 16th century, hung in the air in all their original integrity and without a modern taint. The faces of the people in the doorways seemed those of individuals who habitually gazed on the great Francis and spoke of Henry VIII as the king across the sea. She inquired of a coppersmith if an English artist had been seen there lately. With a suddenness that almost discomfited her, he announced that such a man had been seen sketching a house just below. Vieux Manoir de François Premier. Just turning to see that her aunt was following in the fly, Paula advanced to the house. The wood framework of the lower story was black and varnished. The upper story was brown and not varnished. Carved figures of dragons, griffins, satyrs and mermaids swarmed over the front. An ape stealing apples was the subject of this cantilever, a man undressing of that. These figures were cloaked with little cobwebs which waved in the breeze, so that each figure seemed alive. She examined the woodwork closely. Here and there she discerned pencil marks, which had no doubt been jotted thereon by Somerset as points of admeasurement, in the way she had seen him mark them at the castle. Some fragments of paper lay below. There were pencilled lines on them, and they bore a strong resemblance to a spoilt leaf of Somerset's sketchbook. 
or a glanced up, and from one window above protruded an old woman's head, which, with the exception of the white handkerchief tied round it, was so nearly of the colour of the carvings that she might easily have passed as of a piece with them. The aged woman continued motionless, the remains of her eyes being bent upon Paula, who asked her in Englishwoman's French where the sketcher had gone. Without replying, the crone produced a hand and extended finger from her side, and pointed towards the lower end of the street. Paula went on, the carriage following with difficulty on account of the obstructions in the thoroughfare. At the bottom, the street abutted on a wide one with customary modern life flowing through it. As she looked, Somerset crossed her front along this street, hurrying as if for a wager. By the time that Paula had reached the bottom, Somerset was a long way to the left, and she recognised to her dismay that the busy transverse street was one which led to the railway. She quickened her pace to a run. He did not see her. He even walked faster. She looked behind for the carriage. The driver, in emerging from the 16th century street to the 19th, had apparently turned to the right instead of to the left, as she had done, so that her aunt had lost sight of her. However, she dared not mind it if Somerset would but look back. He partly turned, but not far enough, and it was only to hail a passing omnibus upon which she discerned his luggage. Somerset jumped in, the omnibus drove on, and diminished up the long road. Paula stood hopelessly still, and in a few minutes puffs of steam showed her that the train had gone. She turned and waited, the two or three children who had gathered round her looking up sympathisingly in her face. Her aunt, having now discovered the direction of her flight, drove up and beckoned to her. "'What's the matter?' asked Mrs. Goodman in alarm. "'Why, that you should run like that and look so woebegone. "'Nothing, only I've decided not to stay in this town.' "'What? He's gone, I suppose?' "'Yes,' exclaimed Paula, with the tears of vexation in her eyes. "'It isn't every man who gets a woman of my position to run after him on foot and alone, "'and he ought to have looked round.' Drive to the station. I wanted to make an inquiry. On reaching the station, she asked the booking clerk some questions and returned to her aunt with a cheerful countenance. Mr. Somerset has only gone to Caen, she said. He is the only Englishman who went by this train, so there is no mistake. There is no other train for two hours. We will go on, then, shall we? I am indifferent, said Mrs. Goodman. But, Paula, do you think this is quite right? Perhaps he is not so anxious for your forgiveness as you think. Perhaps he saw you and wouldn't stay. Momentary dismay crossed her face, but it passed, and she answered, Aunt, that's nonsense. I know him well enough, and can assure you that if he had only known I was running after him, he would have looked round sharply enough, and would have given his little finger rather than have missed me. I don't make myself so silly as to run after a gentleman without good grounds, for I know well that it is an undignified thing to do. Indeed, I could never have thought of doing it if I had not been so miserably in the wrong. End of Book the Sixth, Part One